0: Well met friends, I'm Steph Midlock.
1: And I'm Jude Vase.
0: Welcome to Aetherbeth, a podcast exploring the irreverent imaginings of Tolkien's legendarium. Ooh, nice alliteration, Jude!
1: Thank you. Whoa. I almost went with, uh, what was the one I almost, oh, smutty storytelling.
0: Oh, well.
1: But it turns out there's n- no no smuttiness in this episode. I just, because it's about fan fiction, I wanted to say smutty. Yeah. Uh, but... <laughs> They There's nothing remotely. Hand hand. Yeah. If we were talking about like any other kind of fan fiction, uh, I would have gone with smutty storytelling. But uh, <laughs> Tolkien's version of of fan fiction is extraordinarily not smutty. So,
0: well, I mean, yeah, that's just like what you and I like. That may not be what Tolkien likes. Who knows?
1: That's true. Fair enough. You do you. Uh, <laughs> you can enjoy any kind of fan fiction you want, whether it's yeah. smutty or not.
0: Yeah, Exactly. Well, you kind of let the cat out of the bag a little bit on what we're talking well,
1: about. Well, it's in three. the title. Well, um, okay, hold
0: on. Do we have any announcements or anything
1: first? Oh, your periodic reminder that your Athrobeth hosts will be at Oxenmoot. Moot, Thank you. Uh, this summer. So, if you are going to be there, please let us know. We are both weird and yeah. scarred by COVID, so our already inept social <laughs> skills are even more <laughs> atrophied than normal. Uh, So please uh, hit us up on Twitter or our Discord or, I don't know, send a pigeon and uh, let us know that you uh, are also going to be there so we can have awkward conversation in person.
0: Yeah, or if you're going to go digitally, you know, let me know too, because I'm going to be on Twitter all weekend and we'll, we'll chat. It'll be lovely. That would be lovely.
1: Assuming Twitter still exists by then.
0: Oh, who knows? Who knows? Anyway, yep. Jude and I are also going to the fancy dinner the day before, and yep. we're going to eat venison. I assume you chose the venison.
1: Uh, yes.
0: Okay. Because come on, we get to sit in Exeter College Dining Hall and eat venison? That's yeah. so dope. I feel like Ghibli would be like, mm, I approve of this. This is good. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> cool.
1: All right. Well, we've got many other worldly paths to tread, so let's begin. All right, so this month, we are going to be talking about something that I have referred to in passing and discussed sort of casually for most of the run of this show, (laughs) but I have never, like, we've never really dived into in any great detail, Mm. and that is the concept of The Hobbit as fairy fan fiction.
0: Yes. We hear this a lot from Jude. And I've also adopted it, but without really thinking about it.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, so now
0: it's time for me to actually think about it. <laughs> yeah.
1: So we're gonna get into what exactly we mean when we say that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and what what int- what it really that it goes into that. Yeah. So right at the top, though, I want to give credit where credit's due. Much of this thesis, this concept, is owed to John Ratliff, who wrote mm-hmm. the criminally underrated history of the Hobbit. Mm. This is a volume that I do not see enough scholarship referring to, but it is a really, really good work that just does an, an incredible deep dive on the Hobbit and has done some really, really cool investigative work on the sort of literary context of the Hobbit. Oh, And we're going to be, and I read it extensively in the past, so I, uh, a lot of my thoughts on The Hobbit were influenced by this volume, so.
0: Okay, yeah, John Ratliff, that's one of those names that you hear about a lot. um, Yeah, yeah, he's written quite a bit, but this book,
1: yeah, you would expect it, I I always expect it to come up when talking about The Hobbit, not, Mm -hmm. it doesn't come up nearly as often as I would think it would, so.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I will admit, first out, that I have not read the history of The Hobbit, so. I That is on my list as like the next thing I'm going to read. And so, it's
1: super readable too. Like okay. way more than the other histories. Okay. It reads very much. It's honestly, it reads much more like Tolkien in the Great War mm-hmm. than it does Morgoth's Ring or something like that.
0: Sure. Oh, great. Okay. It's pretty accessible. Well, that's cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah.
1: So what is our sort of thesis here? What are we getting at with this? And the general idea here that we're going to get into is that And we've talked in the past about the fact that The the Hobbit, as a literary work, is very different from The Lord of the Rings or The Silmarillion or the rest of it. Mm -hmm. In that, it was not originally intended as a piece of Middle-earth and its inclusion. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Um, It was written very much as a one-off. And as it developed over time, it was wrapped into Middle Earth.
0: Really, though, because I mean that's so interesting. Well, okay, just because Tolkien, even as early as like the 1910s, was already forming his his stuff. Yeah, I mean in a you know mm-hmm. in a basic way. So that's Absolutely. really surprising to me. So, but are you going to tell me more about how those yeah. things like influenced him? Okay, so, all right, and what I'll we, accept that.
1: So what we see in The Hobbit is Tolkien is basically doing fairy tale fan fiction. And this is where this concept comes from. What he's doing okay. is he is taking the tropes and archetypes of fairy stories that mm-hmm. were he was familiar with and that his readers at the time would have been very familiar with if they were as immersed in fantasy fairy literature as he was. Right. And mashing them together. Now, what's interesting about that is, as time has gone on, the parts of that that we recognize have changed because unless you are a literature major or a big fucking nerd, and I don't mean that in the <laughs> casual sense, I mean a legit big fucking nerd, most people don't catch the fairy references. They just get the Tolkien references. And as a result, The Hobbit feels much more like a part of Middle-earth than it does participating in these fairy story tropes and references Mm -hmm. than it actually is. Oh, And Tolkien contributed to that by after the success of Lord of the Rings and as he was writing Lord of the Rings, he goes back and he makes revisions to The Hobbit. Changing the things like the riddle game and stuff to to draw The Hobbit more closely into Middle-earth. But what we're going to do is we're going to look over, in particular, the elves, because this is the place where where this is most strongly evidenced. Okay. And we're going to look at how the elves show evidence of being an amalgam of all these fairy tropes.
0: Okay. That's great. Can I also, once we're done, kind of talk about the elves or like maybe... Interspersed, there's. Yeah. I, I wrote down like. Uh, I recently reread it, uh, The Hobbit, just to kind of get ready for this, and I wrote down a bunch of stuff that I was also like, Oh, that's also a fairy thing, but it's not an elf thing. So, can mentioned yeah, mention please. the other ones too? Okay, cool, 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 cool.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm so, excited.
0: Well, and can I also just start by saying too that I recently reread John Garth's Tolkien in the Great War, which is a book that we talked about. We've talked about a lot on this podcast over the years. He's mm-hmm. got a great chapter. Uh, chapter four is all about like the world of fairy and Tolkien, and. I just wanted to point out a couple of things that he said to kind of get us thinking about it. One point that John Garth makes is that fairy stories, like even in the like Victorian times and stuff in England, right? So the idea is that fairy stories kind of really spring in like the 18, what? 50s 60s 70s as a result of this industrial revolution right it's people like trying to get back to like you know the idyllic pastoral past or whatever this like thing that they have yeah. in their brain right so but what he what John Garth reminds us is that fairy stories you know in English tradition come in so many different shapes and sizes and the way that fairy stories describe some of the same things like Sometimes fairies will be like out in the wild, far away from people. And sometimes they'll be like all up in our business. Like it's very, co- it can be very contradictory. And I yeah. thought that was kind of a nice thing to keep in mind because we're going to see that a little bit in yeah. Tolkien's writing that, that they can be, that even himself, he could be a bit contradictory, right? Um, Depending on where he is in his writing journey when he talks about these things. But um, yeah, I just kind of liked that. And I, I, and I also wanted to remind everybody of Tolkien's in fairies, on fairy stories, right? Right, which we talked about we've talked about in the past as well that piece of writing yeah, that he, we'll talk which, about that for sure. Oh okay. All right. So I'll can it for now and we'll go back to it. All right. Cool.
1: Yeah. Nice. So we're going to first talk about Rivendell. Ooh. So early on in the Hobbit, the the party, Bilbo and Ga- and Gandalf and the dwarves roll into Rivendell and the introduction of Rivendell in the Hobbit. <laughs> yeah. For the reader of The Lord of the Rings, probably <laughs> feels pretty fucking wonky.
0: Yes. Because it's they roll silly. in
1: and <laughs> yeah, it, that's exactly the right word. It's <laughs> a bunch of elves singing a nonsense song, prancing about in a very lighthearted way. Mm-hmm. Uh, although the narrator warns, don't think of them as, as foolish or, you know, be wary of them, even though they seem silly, or whatever it is that he says. This is As Ratliff describes them, elves depicted as delicate fairy dancers or pipers from Jacobian writers like Drayton and Shakespeare. And despite the narrator's warning that there's little there's little threat in them, they seem to enjoy the dwarves discomfort. But like, there's not a lot of like menace or sadness or any of the sort of melancholy that you associate (laughs) with Rivendell. Come Lord of the Rings. Can I read this one part of the song?
0: Yeah, it's oh tree lili lolly, the valley is jolly. Ha <laughs> <Yeah>, ha.
1: <laughs> sorry. Exactly. That's the
0: words. It's sorry. It's very silly.
1: Yeah. And then we do get a little bit of a description of Rivendell, but it is not the Rivendell we know either. It isn't this like graceful, arch, medieval place. It mm-hmm. again has this very fairylandesque mm-hmm. description right the most noteworthy aspect of it is the bridge in fairy stories and across all kinds of traditions across all kinds of ages crossing a, a bridge is a very obvious signifier that you're tr- you're entering a another land mm-hmm. a fairyland and yeah.
0: Bridges are like liminal spaces, right? Between precisely. Exactly. Yeah.
1: yeah. You took the words right out of my mouth. So we have this bridge, which is typically a precarious one. And in this case, it's described as being a very long bridge. And so this is a, a sign that readers at that time would have immediately identified as being, oh, they're going into some sort of a fairy land. There's elves, they're crossing a bridge. They would have immediately picked up on this, these signifiers as being part of that fairy story tradition. Mm-hmm. modern readers don't have that context because we don't have yeah. the average fan. Even the average fantasy reader doesn't necessarily hasn't read necessarily as much fairy story or fairy tale fiction to know mm. what the signifier of a bridge with related to fairies or elves is.
0: I mean, I think a lot of I mean, even horror writers use that, like the covered bridge, right? In like in like um like the New England horror stuff of like Lovecraft, they do use that in the same way. But you're right; it's maybe not as maybe it's more um it, the people in the know will know. But you're right; I think the regular person might not pick up on that. That's interesting. yeah, it's
1: it's different. So um,
0: <clears throat> well, and even the name of his the, you know the last homely house, the name of Rivendell, yeah, does, it, that in my mind. If I think about that, I think about like a lovely, like warm, comfortable cottage, not like a gorgeous, graceful elven house. Um, yeah. And it seems to me that he maybe this is similar to the cottage of Lost Play, right? The place that he in his exactly. youth wrote a lot about. Okay, interesting.
1: Yeah. Elrond is one of the few places where we see, contrary to the the earlier depictions of the elves in Rivendell, and I think this is really interesting. The Elrond we see once they enter Rivendell is very much the Elrond of Middle-earth, mm. And I think it's interesting that Elrond is a character that has been fairly consistent in Tolkien's stories from a very early point mm. and is a very established character. And so Tolkien just ports him over more or less whole cloth. He, unlike his subjects, so to speak, <laughs> he's sort of... He's not frivolous or silly. He's very serious and wise. He knows virtually as much about the dwarves as the dwarves do.
0: Right. Yeah. And. Yeah. He knew all about runes. Yeah. He was very, you're right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He knew about the swords, right? The swords that the guys had found. Yeah, exactly. yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. He knows about the swords and he not just knows about them, but he, he refers to them as coming from Gondolin. Right. Right. Hmm. So. Referring to the the tradition, calling back to Tolkien's own Middle-earth writings, his traditions. Right. While he doesn't explicitly say like, oh yeah, that sword you've got there, Gandalf, that was my great-grandfather's. Like, you know. Yeah. Or great-great-grandfather's, I can't remember which one it is. <laughs> but I do think it's noteworthy though. And this is an, this is where it's interesting, is that the places where Tolkien is willing to Not willing, but the places where Tolkien is using his own mythology and where he's not Mm. because he mentions Gondolin as this elven stronghold that went to war with the orcs Mm -hmm. and these swords come from there. But he doesn't mention Turgon by name. Right. But earlier in the book, he does mention Golfin as an orc. (laughs) <laughs> who was beheaded by a hobbit, and, oh! who, and who was the origin of the sport of golf? Yeah, Dromedary
0: Tuke. Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> so it's very, you, it's oh, a very no. silly way in which Tolkien is picking and choosing from his own mythology what he cares about and what he doesn't mm-hmm. in the context of the Hobbit, and that's one of the ways you can tell that the Hobbit was not originally intended to be part of his Middle Earth mm-hmm. because he's not consistently sample, consistently setting it within middle earth okay he's just kind of pulling out the stuff that he thinks is is going to fit the story mm. because he's telling the story for his kids
0: right okay i was going to ask you about that because i i always hear that oh tolkien yeah. wrote this for his children but mm-hmm. does rate or something like actually pull? is that is that, that, is is that a, a proven i mean thing? that's as
1: far as anybody knows that is the story he said and that is okay. as far as anybody knows that's the truth that's how it started
0: I love that idea. I know that um John Garth makes the point that some of those very early uh poem fairy poems that he wrote like in 1915 like Goblin Feet and what's the other one Tin Fang Warble and then yeah. that other one that those were written for Edith And he used to call her like his little one, which is really cute because he uses little like when he talks about the elves and stuff. So anyway, I think that's lovely. Yeah. So but I mean, so that's your point is that this is a children's story for children. (laughs) You bring that up a lot. And I think that's important to remind ourselves when people kind of get down on the Hobbit. Right.
1: Yeah, it is. And that's we have ragged on the movie pretty extensively. And that is the fundamental complaint I have with Jackson's Hobbit. Mm -hmm. is that it misconstrues what The Hobbit is at a fundamental level. Putting aside the fact that I don't think it's a very well-made movie other than Sexy Thranduil, um, Mm. (laughs) I don't think it's a very well-made movie, but that's not my chief complaint. My chief complaint is that when you do any kind of adaptation, I think the most crucial thing is it has to either be well-made on its own or it has to really understand the source material and uh, and like carry that heart forward.
0: Mm.
1: It has to do one of those two things really well, <laughs> ideally both. Right. But if it can do one, you can get by okay. like there are adaptations that don't either. They don't understand or they choose to, to, to do something different than like the heart of the source material. And it works because what they do is still well-made and mm. well-crafted like the magicians, which chooses not to be the source material in a smart, interesting way. And then you have stuff that is well-made and very true to the source material, like arguably you could say the Lord of the Rings Jackson's Lord of the Rings, which Mm -hmm. it has its differences, but I think it really, in many places, gets the source material and wants to stay true to it.
0: Yeah,
1: The Hobbit, Jackson's Hobbit, wants to be more Lord of the Rings and doesn't get that The Hobbit is a fairy story for kids.
0: Huh. Uh, yeah. But then in other times, I feel like it, it falls too far on the kid's side, like that whole Radagast thing. Listen, and I'm going to say this as someone who has only seen the first one because I was sad about it. Uh, you know, so anyway, whatever. I just feel like sometimes it felt, it, it either swung too hard one way or the other, and it just couldn't yeah, find juven- its own There's voice. a difference
1: between juvenile and kids.
0: Yeah, that's okay. Oh, good point. Oh, I like that you said that. Yes. True.
1: Like the Radagast being covered in bird crap is like a juvenile sight gag? Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with the fact that the f- that the movie should be a fairy story for kids. Yeah. That's a that's a that's a thing of of tone and spirit, not about whether you can do you could do that that sight gag with Radagast with poop on him. In a way that works in a kid's movie.
0: Yeah.
1: So anyway. Well, anyway, aside, we digress. We digress. We digress. Uh, <laughs> so let's skip ahead a little bit in the book. Sure. To another To another section. And that is later on in the book, like chapters like seven, eight, nine are some of the most overt examples of these fairy story call like signifiers in the mm. entire novel.
0: Yeah, Mm. But they're like totally lost.
1: I don't think they're lost. I think a lot of them are. mm, mm. Particularly for (laughs) me, I think there's a great example of this. In History of the Hobbit, Ratliff points out seven different ways in the introduction of the Woodland Elves, of the Elves of the Woodland Realm, that the Elves are signifying that there are are, uh, signifiers of elf slash fairy story tropes being used here. Okay, and I think uh, I'll, I will list them, and you'll yeah. see that many of these I think are fairly subtle in the sense. Well, we'll we'll go over them. You so the, go
0: through them, and let's see if I can figure out what they are. Is that well, useful? Okay.
1: Will you? So do, the, do the first is elves vanishing when pursued, yes. particularly three times.
0: I wanted to say too that again, uh, John Garth mentions that in the poem "Goblin Feet," which I think is from 1915, um, yeah. and that that's a trope that he uses there too, where it's like the onlooker is is like trying to follow this group, and every time they follow them, they yeah they like disappear. Yep, that's yep. such a thing. That's such a thing. I love it.
1: Yep, the presence of fairy lights or a will o the wisp.
0: Oh yes, yes, yes. yes. Um,
1: in this case, there's the lights that Bomber follows. Uh huh. A fairy ring. Which I think is uh, slightly like a, more well known, slightly. Yeah, like um, a ring
0: of mushrooms or something yeah. in the forest
1: floor. Yeah, yep. yep um, yep. the enchanted sleep.
0: Right. I want to talk about that because that. Yeah, that's a huge thing in in the many many y- uh, many
1: fairy stories. Right. Yeah.
0: Exactly. I love that. Mm-hmm.
1: Number five, and this one I think is probably the most subtle of them is the white fauna. In this case, in the, of the Hobbit, the the white doe. That they see in the forest and oh. then the, the, the white horses of the elves. Oh. Number six love- is the elven hunting party, which okay. eventually captures the dwarves. A hunt, like an elven sure. hunting party is very much a signifier. And the last one is the habitation of the elves being an underground barrow of some kind from which escape is difficult or impossible. Mm. So it's not that these things are not things that we don't associate with elves necessarily. Mm -hmm. But this whole chapter, as you can see, when you line them all up like that, yeah. if you are someone for whom fairy stories and elven stories are bread and butter, you are just like, oh, fuck, man, this is fairy story shit going on right here. (laughs) But if you're a casual reader who doesn't necessarily pick up on those, it doesn't hit the same way. You're not getting the full context that Tolkien is putting into it.
0: Sure, but you do acknowledge it's something otherworldly or like magical is
1: happening. Yeah, I think right? you get sort of the flavor of it from these things, but mm-hmm. you don't get the full context. And I think it's really interesting. Yeah, I think that's real and I think that's a a really interesting aspect of this of this section.
0: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And like yeah, you I I really I like flew through these chapters cuz I thought they were so cool and yeah. um I wanted to get to party elf dad, but yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then you get to the the Woodland Elves, who are right. one of I think the most interesting cases of Tolkien doing fan fiction of himself.
0: Really? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. That's not where I thought you were going with that. All right. Tell me. Fill me in. What's the deal?
1: Well, so we get to the Wood Elves, and they're a really interesting example of change how they change over time in the drafts of The Hobbit. So when you oh. first meet them, he refers to them as being not particularly wicked, indeed not at all. But most of them are descended from the ancient elves who never went to the great fairyland of the west.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So these are Sindar, is right. what he's saying. Right. And he further says that based on the description, the way that they're described as living underground, and the mm-hmm. the descriptions of the 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 elven king, where it ends up, where you end up with is that the elven king is essentially a riff on thingle
0: Well, and th- yeah. his
1: domain is a riff on Doriath. Okay. And from his hatred of the dwarves to yeah. the underground domain and the fact that he's a king of the Sindar, well, all these but... things kind of pile up and it's only until he's writing The Lord of the Rings that he differentiates this ma- the the elven king with a name of his own.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because I actually made a note that that he alluded to Thingol, and that ne- and now Glamir, right? The necklace. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, he tells the story of how like the elf lord, but he, he it's like an unnamed elf lord, right, who had trouble with the dwarves and and yeah. kind of and ate it. So, and I was like, oh, cool. That's th- I know exactly what you're talking about. That's Thingol. But okay, you're saying that maybe like. Yeah, yeah, but like okay, there's other like pastiche.
1: There yeah. are other references as well. He which Ratliff describes as circumstantial, I'm air quoting, uh connecting the elves of Merkwood with those of Doriath in the form of the wine of Dorwinian.
0: Mm, yes.
1: Uh which appears only in the Elven King's Home in the Hobbit and in the lays of The Children of Huron, where mm. Beleg of Doriath gives it to Hr- Turin and his companions.
0: Oh interesting.
1: I think you can make a pretty good argument. That the Elven King, particularly in his early conceptions, is Tolkien basically doing like a cover mm-hmm. of Thingle and Doriath.
0: But had they already been they were already a thing, he had already written them.
1: Yeah, long yeah, for sure. Okay, they were so already they already well existed and he was yeah. just
0: repurposing them here. Oh, yeah. Okay, interesting.
1: And then later on, he goes on to give to give the Elven King a name, Thranduil. Right after he's written the Lord of the Rings, and he makes Legolas oh, his son. Gosh, and...
0: yeah, you're right. He never, he never. That whole time I was reading the Hobbit, he never said his name. You're right. She... No, he
1: doesn't have a name in the yeah. in the Hobbit. He's Elf only Lord. the Elven King, and he doesn't get he doesn't even get a name in in the Lord of the Rings proper. It's the appendices in which he. <sighs> He is referred to as Legolas's father.
0: Okay. Oh, that's so interesting. Yes, I mean, there. I I certainly made sure to highlight for myself. I think there's. I can't remember the exact quote, but he's like, "Yeah, they are different from the high elves of the west." Like, he even calls it out. Like, yeah. Very um, early on, that these are different, and I mean, and we see that in. Well, well, our friend Bilbo is, you know, skulking around and trying to help his friends out. That I just wrote the words elf winos.
1: <laughs> yes,
0: <laughs> because it's they're so silly, right? They're a bit silly. Yeah, they are. Yeah, and <clears throat> it just feels yeah, it feels very, very different than um than what we come to know. Yeah, because they basically have to wait until one of them gets drunk and passes out before they could do the barrel thing, right? Yeah, they can get Which in the barrels. Is-
1: not particularly elven per uh, <laughs> as we understand our our graceful. I feel a tingling in my fingertips. Right, uh, elves <laughs> from the Lord of the Rings.
0: <laughs> Teetotaler elves in Peter Jackson's one. Well, I yeah. mean, that's the thing. It's like it's all like you know, it's all your interpretation and stuff. That's yeah. very funny though. I know. Well, and, you know, there were, okay, now that we had it, I can't remember in what context I read this and brought it up, but a while ago in an episode I talked about, it was like a paper from the 70s where a woman was writing, gosh, I'm so sorry, I can't remember, writing about um, the differences um, in the way that Tolkien uses food in his works. And mm-hmm. she had brought up the point that, you know, the hobbits, like, in Tom Bombadil's house and in, like, Bilbo's house, we hear a lot about, like, what the what the food was. But then when you, when you get to the Lord of the Rings, not the hobbit, but then the Lord of the Rings, we never really hear about the elves' food. You know that they're eating food and you know that it's, like, healing them like sort of physically making them stronger, but we never hear what it is. And it's very, it's kind of different. Like you do hear a little bit about like the feasting. Yeah. It even says like are they were a feasting people. And we do hear uh, yeah a lot about that. And that, of course, all the wine. Uh, yeah. yeah interesting. Hmm. <laughs> I kind of like these elves, you know, these elves are fun. I could hang with these elves. I feel like the other elves would think I'm pretty annoying. These guys would be like, I mean, you're still annoying, but you can hang.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So, we talked briefly, We, we you, you mentioned briefly the on-fairy stories, uh-huh. and what I think we see here is in on-fairy stories, Tolkien mentions the cauldron of story, mm-hmm. and this idea that you put all the ideas, all the stories into this cauldron, and when you're creating things, when you're sub-creating, you put all this stuff in, and then you just recover the stuff that you like like recovery is this process by which you draw out the stuff that you the well they're sort of separate. But yeah,
0: they're separate. I would say they're separate. But yes, you but, can but yeah, you you can you can go to your cauldron and pull out things that you like to read. That you
1: like that right? were meaningful to you. And mm-hmm. very much to me, what I see happening in the Hobbit is Tolkien is throwing all the fairy stories that inspired him. Even and even the ones that he didn't particularly like because Tolkien was on the record for being fairly snooty about the precious little fairy stories of the Victorian era.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: And he puts all those in his cauldron, but into that cauldron also goes Middle-earth. His own stories. And he's, s- you know, it up. stirring that around and out comes the Hobbit, which is like, I don't know. I would say like 40% Middle-earth, like fairy story and then Mm. whatever's left over is just kind of its own weird thing with snow giants and talking (laughs) trolls and its own weird thing. Whatever that
0: is. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then it kind of over time he has to like reattach it to middle earth, but in its initial conception, my like it reads very much to me like him Mm -hmm. drawing this out of the cauldron where it is mixed with all these other fairy story tropes, just as, you know, in a similar in more or less equal proportion with all the uh, all the stories that inspired it.
0: Yeah. Um, can I ask you a question? Yeah, of course. So also uh in on fairy stories, so like his thesis there is that the purpose of fairy stories is to provide like recovery, right? Um, mm-hmm. to provide like escape and to provide like consolation. Um in for whatever it is you've lost, right, whether it's like your sense of wonder or like an actual something that you've lost, do you feel that the hobbit ticks off these three things purpose, recovery, escape?
1: I think it certainly is recovery and escape okay. I don't know about the first one, but
0: consolation, the third one
1: or the th- consolation, probably, yeah, okay, um yeah. because what it's doing is it's recovering all these fairy tropes. Uh huh, sure. And it's building this, it's this, this nice, maybe not nice, but it's, it's escapism for sure. Yeah. Because it's taking, it's creating this world with all these fairy story tropes that, Mm -hmm. especially at the time, and I think it really speaks to the power of the story and the power of Tolkien's world building that 70 years later, or whatever it is, the more than that, Mm-hmm. Like a hundred years later, almost now. <laughs> well, I guess not quite a hundred years. Whatever. Um, math is hard. Uh, <laughs> our our cultural references, our context, has moved past the Hobbit, right? Mm. Where we don't have the same literary context that that book was written for. Mm. So that a lot of the things that would have made that work as escape aren't there anymore.
0: But they are there.
1: Not entirely. Mm,
0: because like I, I said,
1: I, I a lot of the a lot of the fairy story tropes mm. that he is working from there yeah. aren't familiar to the modern reader. <sighs>
0: But I wonder if they're actually so familiar because they're so, for years, been woven into all of the stories that we, in our own culture of story. I think they're so familiar that maybe they, maybe we don't realize that they are from fairy stories, like Victorian fairy stories, but that that they are familiar in a way,
1: right? I think to a certain degree they are, but I don't think most casual readers Mm -hmm. would identify a white doe as being a fairy signifier or a bridge or a yeah. procession that you have to chase three times right like these were things that were explicitly recognized okay as a part of like myth myths and fairy ta- stories that yeah. people could have called out and recognized as being like like if, if you asked readers right. in at that time like what are the signs of a fa- of of mm. fairies they could have listed these sorts of things. Like if you see a white animal in the forest, it's fairies. Or if you see a circle of mushrooms, that's fairies. People today don't have that same close familiarity. The way that if you ask them, like what are, you know, what are, what are talk? Some do, but not, not the common readership, the way that the common, if you ask like your common fan, like what kind of races live in a fantasy world, they'd be like, Oh, elves, dwarves, hobbits, things like that. Right, Tolkien himself was largely responsible for moving that context for what what fa- what fantasy is, and so it's interesting to me. That's part of what I think makes The Hobbit so interesting, is that it's fairy tale fan fiction yeah. that we don't. A lot of the casual readers don't recognize mm-hmm. as fairy tale fan fiction because a lot of the stuff he was fan fictioning. <laughs> isn't re- isn't stuff that most people recognize? All they see is the Middle Earth stuff, yeah, is the Lord of the Rings stuff, and that's the only visible part of it people see these days.
0: Yeah, there may be f- bits that feel familiar, but they do- can't put their finger on why. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. I really, really like that. Can we talk about some of the things other than the elves that also sort of feel like that? Yeah. Um, and The one I'd love to bring up first, because it kind of hits you in chapter one. Well, so first of all, like the hobbits themselves are called little people, which uh, some of you may or may not know. My mother is from the Isle of Man, which is a small uh, island in the Irish Sea. And on the Isle of Man, they have a big fairy culture, but you're not supposed to call them fairies. You call them little people. You never call You cannot say the word fairy on the Isle of Man. So I thought that was kind of neat. And uh, I, but yeah but even more than that I you know there's a lot of talk in The Hobbit about you know Bilbo having you know being part Took and there that, that there was this Tookish ancestor that may have taken a fairy wife that's like the story because there's yeah. something not entirely Hobbit like about them and the Took there's all this talk about the members of the Took family who would go off and have these adventures and they were like you know there's uh, you know and then later it says in the book that something Tookish woke up inside Bilbo right and he wanted to to go and see. Yeah. I love that idea that there is like somebody down the line had themselves a, you know, a similar like a something like fairy Tom strange and, and Goldberry. Yeah. <laughs> introduced uh
1: uh an element of I don't know, adventurousness into into the line.
0: Yeah, it makes me think of uh, Gandalf chastising Peregrine Took in the Lord of the Rings, saying like the fool yeah. of a Took. You know, I feel like Gandalf you has dealt with this. Yeah, he sort of dealt with this. The Tooks making fun decisions, like a lot. Um, yeah, there's. I, I just think that is so so cool. I and I like. There's also uh, he use he says that Bilbo was Tookishly determined to go on with things. There's just something very very cool about that. I like the Took yeah. family a lot. That is very cool. I also thought, I mean, well, I mean there's a dragon in this, right? That's absolutely a fairy mm-hmm. story thing. And, yeah, you know, encrusted sure. with jewels and all of the things about dragon hordes.
1: Yeah, I would definitely Smaug is for sure yeah. the most fairy story esque dragon that Tolkien ever conceived of. Yeah. When you compare him to like Encalagon the Black, which who is this like mountain sized destroyer of continents or (laughs) what's his name? Um, uh, uh, the hypnotizing worm, worm Lord, uh, from children of Hurin. You, these are both very different conceptions of dragon as compared to that are very far from the original, from the, the classical dragon trope that is Smaug.
0: What's that? Dragon? Glaurung.
1: Glaurung. Yes.
0: Glaurung. Yeah. Oh man. You know, Glaurung you're can't even right.
1: fly. He's just like a big angry salamander.
0: <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I am also a big angry salamander who cannot fly. <laughs> Boy. Oh brother. I mean, there's also, of course, sort of magical named swords that yeah. we that we already talked about, right? That's mm-hmm. that's a huge thing. Orchrist and that other guy and sting. that other guy. And of course, and we do hear that that's you know, that Bilbo is the one that gives St- sting his name, which is very cool. I like that. Mm-hmm. I also I have to I, say uh
1: mm-hmm. Fauxhammer is the other one. Fauxhammer, which is not so metal. His best work, uh, his best naming work with those. Swords.
0: What? That's dope. Fauxhammer is definitely like it's headlining not, no, back in open I, air this I, year. I have
1: to disagree with you. I think no! Orchrist and Fauxhammer <laughs> and Sting are not Tolkien's best work. Yeah, I not my favorite. Gotta say.
0: What is, I thought it has a, but what is its actual like elf name? It's not. It it's, doesn't
1: have one. That's the thing. Like.
0: Are you sure it does? I thought it does. I mean, I'm sure he translated Orchrist it into Sindarin
1: and... at some point, but. He gave it. It just has the English name initially.
0: Oh no, Glamdring, Fohammer, right? Glamdring. Yeah. Glamdring, Fohammer, uh, the King of Gondolin War. Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. 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 Yeah. I mean, they have cool names. Oh, whatever. I think that I think Fohammer is cool. Fohammer. I definitely think that sounds. It's stupid. fine.
1: It's just not it's like his like best work. Metal. His his best naming work. This is a guy that <laughs> has done some really epic linguistic feats of naming, and I think that's just. Not his best work. That's all. It's I'm saying. true.
0: I think I I I I point. I made a note for myself here to talk about the trolls with the kind of silly names. Like you have these. Well, the, Im- troll, like,
1: the fact that the trolls talk at all. Yeah. Is, yes. Is is a thing. And then yes. yes, they have dumb names too.
0: William, Bert, and Tom, and they're like kind of sitting there eating mutton and yeah. wishing they could have some man flesh. Yeah, they're absolutely you know more fairy tale creatures that we're seeing. Um, and uh, yeah, like wanting to eat man flesh and stuff. Ugh. Not good. Um, yep. I also really liked his use of birds in this story that we, you know, the eagles, but, it, it, you know, are there an amazing, a magical race, blah, blah, blah. But also, I mean, more, I think more importantly, the thrush that the, that's a bird, right? A, what's a thrush? Yes, does anyone know? A thrush know? is a bird. What does it look like? I got to Google it, thrush.
1: Sparrow-esque.
0: Really? Ew, I just looked up thrush and it's like some kind of thing that babies get? Ew. Hold on. Let me write the word bird after (laughs) that. Oh, God. Oh, that's a thrush. I thought it was going to be like a giant bird. It's like a little chibi bird, you know? Like I said, it's it's, it's
1: sparrow-esque.
0: Right, but the Thrush is very important in this and he speaks like a bird language that the men of Dale used to speak um, and use them as messengers to the men of Lake Town like back in the day before Smaug came and fucked everything up, right? And the Thrush, is is it uh Balin who talks to the Thrush? Somebody talks to the Thrush and they—and the Thrush ends up like, oh no, 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 they don't talk to it, whatever. It ends up listening to their conversation and takes that news to Bard, right? And especially yeah. like how to kill Smaug. Uh, so that was some, so I don't know, I just love that. That the the bird is this messenger that we can speak to and that can kind of like and like the ravens right who come mm-hmm. and help the dwarves. I love that use of birds. That's very cool.
1: Agreed, it's cool.
0: What else did I want to talk about? Oh, can we please talk about the talking animals? Or no, I guess they don't talk. But the animals in Bjorn's house that like stand on their hind legs and like carry little trays with their paws. That's adorable. Bjorn's,
1: Bjorn's whole thing is so fucking wild. It's almost. <laughs> It's almost it. like
0: its own weird thing.
1: Yeah. It's almost like, uh, what's his name? Hat and pants and sings. Oh, with lady. The guy you
0: hate Tom Bobadil.
1: I like, love yeah, him. It's almost Bobadil-esque <laughs> levels of, of nonsense.
0: It kind of is, but I mean, okay, and this is something that I talked about in my bear episode, which was the first Steph Shorts, which was, you know, this idea of Bjorn being a skinwalker, uh, which is something that we see in lots of different cultures have this this concept of people that can take animal form.
1: Yeah, but Um, that doesn't explain why he's got, like, ferrets as (laughs) manservants.
0: they're like large gray dogs i feel i feel like they were like wolfhounds well right I, and then there's that scene whatever. okay when they're coming down the path when the when the 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 group is coming down yeah. the path and these horses kind of look at them and then they like run off and then when, by the time gandalf gets to bjorn the two horses are like oh my god those are the guys we saw like they're they don't actually speak but in my head that's how they sounded yeah <laughs> like, yeah like ew bjorn ew there they are ew like and he's like no no they are fine it's fine Anyway, I just love that whole thing. Yeah, there's like the little bear dance that seems to happen, right? Bjorn tells them, don't go outside for whatever reason. Because really, all the bears are just doing the Macarena all night. But that is so weird. Macarena. No. Oh, stop it. Was it spring? Stop! He did big air quotes. Don't make the Macarena sexual. Leave me alone. (laughs) Same. But another, like, wonderful thing. Like, there is so much in this... This book is kind of bonkers, right? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, this isn't really the time. You know what? I'm not going to bring this up now, but I'm going to make a note to myself that I'm going to do an episode of Steph Shorts that's in defense of all of the characters that I really like, the Tolkienists really mean to. And I just want to say that Bomber. "'Leave him alone. Step off of Bomber. "'Have have you never been hangry, Ronald Tolkien? "'Have you never had to just sit down "'because you were grumpy and tired and hungry?' I think not. So whatever. He's just really mean to Bomber and I'm not he into it. Is that is not a fairy story thing. I, that was a personal Steph being angry thing. So, all right, cool. I mean, here's the thing, listeners, like I'm sure we didn't mention all of them. There's so many things. What other fairy story things did you see in The Hobbit that you want to mention? Um yep. What did you think was weird? Dogs on their hind legs holding trays, bears doing the Macarena. What a time to be alive. <laughs> So Jude, tell, tell, tell us, all right, so what are, so what's the main takeaway then here? Like what, what should, so, I mean. I mean, now... so my,
1: my sort of summary yeah. here all right. really is that we have this fusion of Tolkien's tropes, Tolkien's elves with the classical fairy story tropes. And that this is sort of there from the earliest drafts of The Hobbit mm-hmm. all the way through to the end. And to use Tolkien's own analogy, The Hobbit seems to have been drawn from the cauldron of story where it's been simmering like hot dogs in a vat of Svelvita uh, with all the old folk tales and fairy stories that he loved and studied right alongside everything else. Mm -hmm. Uh, And though he later makes changes to sort of more categorically place The Hobbit very slightly more within Middle-earth, The parts of the story that focus on fairy stories remain fundamentally fairy stories. Hmm. And that's why we call it fairy story fan fiction, because this is Tolkien basically self-inserting his own fairy stories into other fairy stories and make writing his own fairy story right alongside them. Right alongside the fairy tropes that inspired him, good or bad. Right. So...
0: That's great. I think that's really, um, I'm so glad you said that. I'm glad you wanted to do this because we do say that very fa- fan fiction phrase quite a lot on the show. And it's nice yes, to actually we back it up with some <laughs> with some scholarly citations and whatnot. So what do you, th- I mean, and I don't know if we've ever really talked about it, but like, how do you personally feel about The Hobbit? Do you like it? Are you going to read it to your son? Absolutely. Like, is I'm gonna, where does definitely going to
1: read it to Oliver. I will admit it's not my favorite thing that Tolkien ever wrote but mostly just because it's just not my jam yeah I don't read Tolkien for the frivolous fun times I read it for the (laughs) elven eschatology and that's you know so it's just not my my cup of tea in a lot of ways but that's not on the Hobbit that's on, on my personal taste I think it's a great story and I am legitimately very excited to read it with my kid
0: yeah oh Maybe it's maybe he's still a little too young. I'm not. Yeah, remember. he's a
1: little young right now for it. Yeah, we're not there yet. But we're not there. <laughs> I'm looking. I'm looking forward to getting there. He's 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 almost there.
0: Yeah. He. Um. Well, and I. You know, this is a great book for if you want to. I don't know think about, like, how would a hobbit deal with all of these problems? I, I feel like you really get into the mind of Bilbo a little bit in this, and you get a lot like, I'm right now trying to study up on hobbits for some upcoming Athroplay, uh, which is a little something that we have cooking up here on mm-hmm. the side of Athrobeth um, So I've been studying up on hobbits and this was, this was an excellent read to kind of get into the hobbit voice and to feel sort of like, what would a hobbit do and how would they react to these scary things happening to them? Mostly just take a nap <laughs> seems to be or <laughs> try to talk you way out of stuff so yes absolutely it was so fun to reread it i honestly had not read it i think since we started this podcast so you know it's been like four or five years since i had reread it so really? it was wonderful yeah well, cool. i don't know why it's short. i don't know what i was thinking but yeah so it was great to do it it was really great I think I'm gonna go off and write some Bjorn fair fan fiction now. Actually, smutty
1: fan fiction. Yeah, gonna, gonna get gonna detail what those bears were doing out there and no, outside. gross,
0: no, <laughs> <laughs> gross. Jude, you're the worst. Well, Jude, thank you so much for this was um, this episode was all you know done by Jude. He came up with this amazing outline and this great concept. So thank you so much. I loved it you're awesome my pleasure thank you my friend thank you Uh, and listeners again let us know if we have missed anything or uh, let us know what your hot takes on this very fan fiction are and if you have any good smutty fan fiction recommendations drop them over on our discord baby woo yeah The road may go ever on and on, but this episode all about fairy fan fiction is over.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes as it helps increase our visibility. You can find us on the web at www.podcast.athrobathe.com. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at athrobeth underscore cast. Mastodon as well. Jude can be found, that's me, at aramidicjude.com. Steph can be found on Instagram at the North Four. producer and James, we- who edits our episodes and makes us sound so good can be found at Jay Pearson. Title music is Lord of the devil rings by pony music, courtesy of pa- pond five. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Sump Pump
0: Sump it and pump it baby
1: Sump it and pump it
0: <laughs> Whoa <gross. laughs>